Good morning, whoa. Good morning, Red Bluff. So this is um, my penultimate day here. Been here about 10 days, leave tomorrow. Dawn and Luke have been fantastic hosts. It's been great to be with the, with the family, with the kids as well. And they've been so generous and I've just had such a great time. And it is lovely to be speaking again this morning. So thank you for coming. If you were here last week, then you will hopefully remember that we talked about a question that always used to bug me when I was a young Christian. What does it mean to have faith and walk by faith and be a person of faith? Which I guess is technically three questions, but you get where I'm coming from. So this week I want to talk about another question that also used to bug me. What does God want? What does God want? from us, from you, and from me. What does he want in this world? What does success look like from his perspective? And what role does he want us to play in that? So if a friend was to ask you that question, what does God want? And especially if they're not from a church background, I wonder what you would say. Let's just run through some possibilities. Maybe you'd start with something fairly low-key. God wants everyone to get along and be nice to each other. A kind of cosmic equivalent of play nicely, children. But the problem is, who defines what playing nicely looks like? Surely the many problems in this world are not going to be solved just by telling everyone to get along. I mean, that can't be a, a bad thing, can it? But surely there must be more to it than that. Maybe you'd go with something more evangelistic. God wants everyone to become a Christian, to ask Jesus into their life. And obviously, that's good. We like that. But then what, after they've prayed the prayer? Is that it? One more name added to that heavenly spreadsheet? It sounds a bit transactional. Surely God's plans and purposes for us and for this world are a bit more ambitious than that. I remember somebody in our church many years ago saying, I know God just wants me to be happy. That was her interpretive lens through which she judged what God was and wasn't saying about everything. If it was something that would make her happy, then God must be in it. And if it was something that wouldn't make her happy, then God obviously wasn't in it. And you can kind of see what she meant, can't you? Because we certainly don't believe that God has an agenda to make us unhappy. But if we push that too far, like she did, we end up with whatever will make me happy being Lord of my life, rather than Jesus being Lord of my life. Okay, so here's another possibility and getting a bit more biblical. And especially if we've got a strong sense of right and wrong. God wants us to keep his commandments. And obviously there is truth in that. Otherwise they wouldn't be called commandments in the first place, would they? There's a clue in the name. But then the question is, which ones? Because there weren't just the famous Ten Commandments. The rabbis counted and there were 613 of them, and that's just in the Old Testament which complicates things a bit for us. 
Because however much we may want to do what the Bible says, some of them do seem to be just a teensy-weensy bit out of date. Like Leviticus 19.19, don't wear clothes made out of two kinds of material. Whatever the point was of that one is definitely lost in the mists of time. And while we're at it, what about this one? If two men are fighting and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts, you should cut off her hand. Show her no pity. That one sounds even more weird, doesn't it? And it's kind of... (laughs) And again, it's kind of hard to see the point thousands of years later, if ever. I love how the old King James says it. She putteth forth her hand and taketh him by the secrets. Now, the reality is, of course, it probably never happened in practice. Although, if you were a married woman and your husband got into a fight and you were only trying to help, you'd be pretty gutted if you hadn't read Deuteronomy recently. But, you know, given, given the problems of figuring out which commandments are relevant, it's no wonder that most Christians today end up deciding for themselves what they will and won't do. Mainly based on a combination of what feels right to me and how convenient or inconvenient it is. And let's be honest, who hasn't been tempted by a polyester and cotton sweater? But if ever you are minded to tell someone that the Bible is God's instruction manual, do be ready when they ask you to show them the section that has the instructions in it. So if none of that is what's most important in what God wants, then what is? I was was thinking about that when I was preparing this talk, and it struck me that it's really all about one thing. But everybody knows that all the best sermons have three points, don't they? So call me old-fashioned, but this morning, three points it will be. But maybe as I'm talking, you can try to figure out what that one point would have been, and I'll tell you at the end. But for now, it's going to be three. Nothing complicated, nothing you need a theological dictionary for, nothing that you'll have forgotten by lunchtime. Three things that, for me, sum up what God wants in this world and how we fit into that. Plus a bonus point four, a freebie that kind of follows on from that. Who says you don't get value for money at Red Bluff Vineyard? So the very first thing I think that God wants is this. God wants us to know how very much he loves us. There are so many Bible verses that tell us that over and over again. If there's one thing that is main and plain in Scripture, this is it. The mountains might shake, the hills might be removed, but my faithful love for you will never be shaken. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, we should be called the children of God, and that 
is what we are. And Romans 8, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible is so full of that message from cover to cover that we surely have to believe it. But the problem that we sometimes have, and maybe this, maybe this is you, we can believe that it's true for people in general, but we struggle to believe that it's actually true for us. We may not think that we are very lovable, but God totally disagrees. Just read the Gospels and see how Jesus was always reaching out to people who also thought they weren't very lovable. And that's mostly because, I'm afraid, um, that's what people have told them, especially the religious leaders. And that's why Jesus got angry with them, because they were hurting and harming the people that God loved and misrepresenting what God was like, because they'd misunderstood God's priorities and what he cared about the most. You see, the religious leaders thought that God was in the commandments business and the meticulous obedience business, but he wasn't. He's always been in the relationships business. The commandments were for the benefit of people, not because God is a control freak who wants to micromanage everybody's lives. And Jesus came to invite us to relate to God directly through himself as the living word, rather than indirectly through commandments as the written word. Jesus loved people and met people as they were, where they were, whatever their circumstances in life, which for most people in first century Israel would have been pretty bad, which Jesus understood because he knew exactly what it's like to be human and have to live the lives that they were living. And we have a vineyard saying that you may have come across, come as you are, which reflects that same love and welcome. Sometimes you may hear another version of that, come as you are, but don't stay that way. And that can give the impression that the welcome that we're offering is provisional and conditional. That the clock is kind of ticking before you're expected to have changed in some way that other people think you ought to. But that is not right. All it's wanted to say is that God's desire is to transform all of us continuously. For all of us to become more and more like him with more and more of the image of God restored in you and me. But what changes, whether it changes, and when it changes, is between each of us and him. It's no one else's business. Unless, of course, we're talking about safeguarding others. What those religious leaders missed, and many still do today, is that the gospel does not start with commandments. It starts with love. 
it doesn't start with a threat of punishment, but an invitation into a relationship. It doesn't start with how bad we are. It starts with how wonderful he is. It's because God loves us in spite of how bad we can be that he wants a relationship with us, a close, intimate, personal relationship like we see pictured in the beginning in Genesis 2 and 3 where we see Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And that's the kind of relationship that Jesus came to restore. So point number one is that God wants us to know how very much he loves us, which is the necessary foundation for and the starting point for number two. God wants us to want to love him in return. And notice, please, that it doesn't just say God wants us to love him. It says God wants us to want to love him. He wants us to be so convinced of his love and so overwhelmed by his love that we are captivated by it, head over heels with it. So we cannot but respond to it by loving him as well. Not by compulsion, not because we're told to, or we ought to, but by our own free choice. Have you ever wondered why God allowed Adam and Eve to do the wrong thing in the Garden of Eden? Why he didn't just leave out that potential to make the wrong choices gene from our human DNA? It's because he wants us to want to love him and do what's right by choice, not because we have no alternative. That's why there had to be the potential for a novel voice for them to listen to. Otherwise, it would be like the elections in a dictatorship, where the good news is that you get a ballot paper. The bad news is there's only one member. And that necessary alternative voice is where Satan comes in. If we cast our minds back to the story of Adam and Eve, if you're familiar with it in Genesis 3, the serpent's strategy is to undermine their confidence in what God is like. Whether God is someone who can be loved and trusted and who wants the best for them. That was the first spiritual battle. But I would say it is still the biggest spiritual battle, which is the truth versus the lies about the kind of God that he is, the kind of person, capital P, that he is, and what matters the most to him. Does he really love us passionately and unconditionally? Is he really the God who we can love in return? There are several reasons that Jesus came and many things that his life, uh, death and resurrection achieved for us. But to my mind, the number one reason was to show us what God is like in a person that we can see, a person we can relate to, and to answer everyone's questions about what God is really like and his love for us. In contrast, 
the agenda of that alternative voice, that Satan voice, is to damage and to undermine and, if possible, to destroy our mental picture and our heart picture of what God is like, the kind of person he is and what things matter to him the most. He wants to replace it with a caricature and lies, which includes the lie that Satan has had the most success with over the centuries, which is that God is a God to be feared, as much or more than he's a God to be loved. You remember the very first thing that Adam said in Genesis 3 after they'd been listening to the serpent. I was afraid, so I hid. Fear had replaced love. A lie had replaced the truth. And once we've got this idea in our heads that God is primarily to be feared, then the lies have taken over. Even though... 1 John 4 tells us perfect love dries out fear. God is not in the business of instilling fear. He's in the business of dispelling fear and filling the space with his presence, which of course brings his perfect love with it. Now don't misunderstand me on this because a deep respect for God is good. A reverence is good. And a sense of awe is good. All of those are right kinds of fear. But never being frightened of him or terrorized by him. That is the alternative voice speaking. If we fear God in those kind of ways, then we've misunderstood him. Because that will not draw us to him, it will drive us away from him. There are people who need to fear God, of course those who do evil and keep on doing evil who hurt the people that God loves. They should fear him because he is a God of justice, especially on behalf of the victims and the powerless and the oppressed who don't get justice in this life. God will make sure that they do in the next life. And then finally, number three, God wants us to love the things that he loves. And we, we could also say that God wants us to hate what he hates, to be angry about things that we feel are not right in this world. But we do need to be really careful about that because it's too easy for that to come across as hating people and being angry with people. Because that old catchphrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, doesn't work so well these days because people don't so easily separate who they are from what they do. They don't think in those terms. So we have to be really careful because whenever we draw up a list of what God loves, people are always at the top. Not just nice people and respectable people and people like me that I naturally get on with but all sorts of people. You know, it came as a, a bit of a shock to me when I realized that the Holy Spirit's agenda for transforming people was not to make them all more like me. Now, you know, the, the commandment had been love your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus said, that's great, but I'm going to raise the bar a bit. Because that was a loving yourself at the same time kind of love. But now, he said, it's a sacrificial love. Now, it's a love one another as I have loved you love. And that's before we even think about what Jesus might have meant by love your enemies, which will be a sermon all by itself. Okay, so another thing that God loves is righteousness. Don't get hung up, please, with imparted righteousness and imputed righteousness and all that technical stuff. It's much simpler to explain than that. There are two aspects to righteousness, two ways that we need to think about it. The first one relates to us. However much God loves us as we are and invites us to come as we are, we need to be made right with him because our natural state is unright with him. So part of God's love was to do something about that, something that we couldn't do. Romans 5 calls that his gift of righteousness, a free gift by grace through Jesus that is ours to receive. And to receive it, we need to turn around and start going toward it. Because in our natural state, we're going in the opposite direction, away from God and away from righteousness. So we all need to turn around and change direction in life. And then when we're living in the fruit of that gift, made righteous in relation to him, then God wants us to be righteous and do righteousness in relation to other people and in relation to his work. Which is why Paul can say in 1 Timothy 6, pursue righteousness. And why Jesus can say in Matthew 6, do righteousness, practice righteousness. And what that means is really simple. Number one, do what's right. Do the right thing. The right thing toward God and the right thing toward people. So whatever the right thing is, just do it, as Nike always say. And number two, it means all of our relationships being right. And that's because in Hebrew thinking, righteousness is not some substance or essence that we get given. It's a relational thing. My relationship with God, my relationship with myself, my relationship with other people, and my relationship with this world, with God's creation. Making sure that all those relationships are right and then keeping them right by the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit. So God invites us to be made righteous through Jesus, and then he calls us to be righteous and to do righteousness. In a world around us that we know isn't right, which is why one day God will make it right, the way that it should be, the way that it was destined to be, in a new creation, a renewed creation, in which all of the not right things, like sin and evil and suffering and death, are taken out of that creation and destroyed. 
like in the parable of the wheat and the weeds in Matthew 13. And when death is gone, what does that make possible? Eternal life. Because there's no death there to take life away anymore. And when sin is gone, what does that make possible? The permanent presence of God. Our righteous God dwelling in us who is now made righteous people. God also loves justice. And there's a, a close connection between righteousness and justice. So much so that in Scripture the idea of righteousness without justice is unthinkable. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. Let justice flow like a river and righteousness like a river that never goes dry. And blessed are those who act justly, who always do what's right. And God loves compassion. Righteousness, justice and compassion are part of who God is. They're part of his nature and character. You, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. So let's uh, wind things up and just quickly recap. What does God want? For you and me and from you and me. Number one, he wants us to know how very much he loves us. Because that is the foundation for everything, including everything else that the Bible has to say. So if we don't get that right, if that isn't the lens through which we're looking at things, we won't get the rest right. Number two, God wants us to want to love him in return. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Not under compulsion, not because we have to or we ought to, but because we want to, because he's captured our hearts. Romans 5.5 says, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Romans 2.4 says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And number three, God wants us to love the things he loves, which starts with people and justice and righteousness and compassion. And of course, many other things that we don't have time to talk about today. But all of which are reflections of who God is and what God is like as a people-centric God. So I said that we would have a bonus point, didn't I? Number four. But it's really actually part of number three. God wants us to do the things that he does. And the reason that it's part of number three is because love is not a feeling word. It's a doing word. Love is not a noun in our lives unless it's a verb in our lives. If we want to be loving God and loving people, God's way, in a biblical way, it's not just feeling love or having love, it's doing love. Now please don't worry about the fear of salvation by works or 
works righteousness that's been handed down to us from the Reformation. We are not in danger of that. The danger that we are in as 21st century Christians is the exact opposite of that. That we think it's all about and only about what we believe. When God sees believing and doing as inseparable. In fact, you read the Gospels, according to Jesus, it's the doing or the not doing that tells him what we believe. Have a look at Matthew 7, Luke 6, 46, and Luke 10, 37. How can we be doing the things that he does? It's easy, by copying Jesus, by doing the kind of things that Jesus did for the reasons that he did, the things that he saw the Father doing. John 9, Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me. And James was pretty blunt about it in James 2. He said, faith without works, in other words, believing without doing, is useless. And I don't just mean works of power, although, of course, for a vineyard, it, it certainly includes wanting to see those happen, doing the stuff, as John Wimber called it. But it also means being the agents of God's love to people, loving them, welcoming them, sharing good news with them, and being good news to them in their bad news lives, just as Jesus did. Doing the things that God loves to the people he loves. And that's what the stories in the Gospels are there for, so that we can see the kinds of things that Jesus did to the people he encountered and then copy Jesus to the people we encounter. So maybe I could ask the band to come back. Thank you. And while, while that's happening, let me just tell you um, why my first thought was to have just one point this morning. So here's a clue on the screen. God wants us, you and me, more than anything else. Because once he's got us, everything else will kind of fall into place. But if he hasn't got us, then nothing will fall into place. So here's a question to ask ourselves. God wants us, but has he got us? Has he really got me? Has he got all of me? Has he got what I do and how I live, as well as what I believe? Or am I maybe caught between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of me? Because that is a very uncomfortable place. It basically means that we are too worldly to be comfortable in the church, too churchy to be comfortable in the world. In Revelation chapter 3, the Apostle John gives a prophetic word from Jesus to the church in Laodicea, and he says this, either be hot or cold, but please don't be lukewarm. Please don't just go through the motions. In verse 15, Jesus says, I wish that you were either one or the other. And, you know, those, those words were 
written to be read out to the whole church. It was a question for every single person to look into their hearts and reflect on their lives right now and to respond not to John but to Jesus because he is the one asking the question. And maybe he's asking every single one of us here this morning that question as well. 